Take your Bible and turn, if you will, to the fourth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning as we continue our series that we began just a few weeks ago in this book. Man, what a book it is. And I'll tell you, today's text, it's confusing. If this is your first time here at Hickory Grove, my name's Kyler Smith. I'm not the pastor of the church. Clint Presley, he'll be here next Sunday, but today... He's at our Harris campus, and he'll spend the whole morning at our Mallow Creek campus next Sunday. I serve as a campus pastor, and I have the privilege to preach in his stead. And today, we're going to look at the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes. Now, many have described this book as the sad sequel to the book of Proverbs. And the reason why is because there are many portions of this book, indeed, chapter 4 is a good example, that look a whole lot like Proverbs. Now, if you've read Proverbs, you'll understand what makes that tough to preach is it tends to be a lot of independent thoughts, like pearls, and it's hard to understand how they all connect. Well, this chapter is one of those, so we're going to do some work to try to figure out what is the theme, what's the thread that unites this otherwise proverbial-looking chapter in Ecclesiastes 4. Before we read this, though, I want to remind you guys, or some of you, that this may be the first time you're hearing it. We are going to at last begin enjoying the fellowship of the Lord's Supper in two weeks. So mark your calendars down, February the 21st. We'll have the Lord's Supper here in our morning service. We're going to have, if you were here years ago, you may even remember them. In the interest of trying to keep it as sanitary as possible, we're going to have those little prepackaged ones. I always jokingly call them the MREs. We'll have those. Be here in two weeks, uh, Sunday, February 21st. We would love to have you join us as we continue this obedient ordinance of the Lord's Supper together. Okay, let's go to the Bible, Ecclesiastes 4. If you found it, I invite you to stand with me as we read together God's Word. Ecclesiastes 4. Now, we're going to look at the whole chapter, but in the interest of time, I'll read through verse 12, and we'll pick up verses 13 and following as we progress through the text this morning. Ecclesiastes 4, beginning in verse 1, the preacher, presumably Solomon, writes, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity. It's a striving after the wind. See, the fool folds his hands and ends up eating his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is a vanity. It's an unhappy business. And he changes tune in verse 9. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. 
For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, well, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I ask that you would come now and speak to your people by your word. Particularly, Lord, what I trust is the thrust of this text is a message every heart in this room and joining us online must heed today. So speak to your people now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There's a silent pandemic devastating our communities right now. More viral than COVID-19. Some 40 to 50% of Americans report having it. Indeed, it's deadlier than COVID-19. Doctors, I'm not making this up, doctors have described having this condition as comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. They say it's a worse factor for mortality than obesity. This pandemic of which I speak, it's older than COVID-19. Some of the mainstream sources of media, like the New York Times, had a banner headline in 2016 that read, this, of which I'm speaking, is killing us. The Washington Post in 2017, it likewise said, listen, The Surgeon General is identifying this as an epidemic in our country. The USA Today, that newspaper in every hotel and convenience store, it even said that this pandemic of which I speak, it's affecting the youngest even more than the older in this nation. Now what I'm referring to, which may disarm you the minute I say it, is loneliness. 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 A real problem that's been one for some time. The late, great Reverend Billy Graham, he once said in an interview that the one commonality he knew in every culture, in every crowd he ever spoke to, the man who spoke to more human beings face-to-face than any other in world history, the one commonality he said that was always in the back of his mind is, I am preaching to a crowd filled of lonely people. Probably wasn't expecting me to cite, of all people, Mother Teresa, but she, in a memorable way, said... That loneliness is the most terrible poverty. She also called it the worst disease of all the diseases she encountered. Loneliness. It's been a problem. Now, we know right now that it is a problem, probably more acutely than it ever has been before for a great many of you. Because these are such unusual times. I know as a minister who knows so many of you so well, as I look out over this room, there are doubtless many of you who feel alone at home. If you're joining us online, maybe this is a painful reminder that you've been stuck there. There's an unusual isolation all of us have experienced. 
But you can be alone. You can be lonely in this very room. Isolated, lost, alone, lonely in a crowd. Maybe you feel lonely in your marriage this moment. Some of you students feel lonely in your friend circles, lonely at school. There is just this overwhelming sense of separation. The kicker is that this problem that has been and is presently devastating our communities will always be a problem whether COVID gets out of town quickly or not. Because an parallel epidemic raging in this culture today is this innate impulse all of us have towards selfish individualism. Ours is a culture where it is prized. It is a proud thing to be able to do things yourself, to pull yourself up, to achieve, and to do so by your own strength. And this is not unique to Western society, though it may feel more acute in our society. Solomon, in Ecclesiastes 4, he recognized that this impulse is part of sinful nature. Indeed, it's part and parcel of what it means to be a man in rebellion. Because Solomon knew that from the very beginning, when God created everything, and he kept saying, good, 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 good. And then he gets to man and he says, very good, the one thing in all the chapter that he describes as not good is the loneliness of Adam. This is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. So he brings him a helper. He provides him that great gift of Eve. And then what happens just a page later in your Bible? They who are enjoying sweet fellowship with God, sweet union with God, they separate. They hide due to sin. They rebel. And the rest of the Old Testament is a story of mankind doing what's right in their own eyes, and reaping the whirlwind, loneliness, despair, separation. And Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon, in all of his wisdom, he surveys the damage of a society of generations that are so enamored with doing what's right in their own eyes. And look, we just read it, look what he sees. He sees a wasteland of carnage. He sees oppression. We saw that in verses 1 through 3. He sees a society racked with enviousness, jealousy. He sees greed overlaying everything. Those are verses 4 through 8. He sees this lonely traveler in verses 9 through 12. Somebody going at it alone. And then he sees a proud leader in verses 13 through 16, which we are yet to read. Somebody who thinks he's got it together himself, who needs no counsel. And here, Solomon starts to lament. And if you were paying close attention, you may have noticed that this text is pessimistic. There is not a lot of joy in this. Not the best text for a rainy, dreary Sunday morning. But underneath it all, I want you to see something. You always got to read Ecclesiastes this way. When you read this, you're going to see this lament, this vanity, vanity, all is vanity with life under the sun. But look for the things he says that are missing. He starts pointing out everything that's wrong. 
But then there's one thing you're going to see. This is the thread that weaves it all together. You're going to notice that what Solomon is drawing to our attention, if you have eyes to see, if you look closely, is that what we need in a society wrecked with individualism, in a society filled with oppression, filled with loneliness and envy and greed, what we need is one another. Indeed, I I would suggest to you that that is the point of chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. This isn't a suggestion or a good idea. We desperately need community. Indeed, we were made for it. This is the thread that strings together all these pearls, these little proverbial sayings in chapter 4. We need each other. Now, this is not a thread unique to this chapter. The thread of loneliness is woven all throughout the Bible. I already told you about Adam and Eve in Genesis. You go read David. David laments in many of the Psalms about his sense of loneliness and despair, crying out to his father for the fellowship he so longs for. You'll also find in the Bible Elijah. He's almost suicidal in 1 Kings 19 because of how lonely he feels. You'll also see Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He starts to lament this sense of loneliness as he is in prison. Even Jesus himself, I dare say, has a sense of loneliness when he laments the lack of partnership he was calling for with his disciples right as he was being arrested. Loneliness is not unique to us today. Nor is this great call, this great solution, that we must seek community. That we must recognize that we desperately need one another. And we're going to see in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I want you to notice with me what Solomon points out. He shows us four reasons why we need one another. Four reasons why we are better together. Four reasons why you could say two are better than one. So if you're taking notes, mark this down. Number one, one reason we need one another is we need one another for compassion, which you noticed in verses one through three. Some bleak verses, some of the bleakest of Bible verses in all the Bible. Now, I need not tell you just how tough and hard life can be. Injustice abounds. Suffering is common in this room. Creation is groaning. And the truth of the matter is, if you start to look too closely, you can get weak at the knees. You can start to despair over the brevity of life. How many in this room have lost a loved one lately and you weren't expecting it? This has been poignantly drawn out for me because I am right now witnessing the closest friend I had in college die. Now take a look up here. I'm a young man. This man is a father of five in his 40s. and his I'm sorry, in his 30s. Young, healthy. First time I saw him at John Brown University, I saw him from afar and there was some guy walking up the stairs to our chapel. He had a big old ESV study Bible about the size of a small child hanging under his arm. And I wanted to know who that guy was. I went and met him. His name was Joel Tigreen. Joel and I met. He ended up joining the church where I was pastoring. And we became the closest of friends. That brother, unlike any other human, 
has had an incalculable impact on my life and faith. We prayed together, we read together, we labored and ministered together, and then we parted ways. God called me to Hickory Grove, and God called Joel to Turkey, where he and his wife and eventually his five children ministered for the last five years until January of this past year, where one day he noticed a pain in his right arm, and it wouldn't go away. The pain gets worse. He goes to the doctor, an otherwise healthy specimen, discovers he has terminal cancer. They come back to the United States. He's seeking treatments, and he is right now in the hospital where we text messaged this morning. You talk about a punch to the gut, a reminder that there are things that are just not right. And if you look too closely, it can make you despair. It can make you sick to your stomach. You look at your trials, your burdens, what's on your platter this moment. What do you end up doing? Most folks do one of two things. They either fixate on it and then they get anxious. They get overridden with anxiety or depression or despair. But the vast majority in our culture, I trust many in this room, tend to do something different. Are you, if you're anything like me, instead of looking at it, you tend to look away. You start distracting yourself. Lord knows I do. You distract yourself with something entertaining, amusing, something that just gets your mind off of it all. Solomon looks it square in the eye. He calls a spade a spade. And Solomon, looking at reality, says, this world is evil. He says in verses 1 and 2, oppressions are everywhere. In fact, he gets so crazy about it, he says, you might as well die. He takes it even a step further and says, you might as well not have been born. My word, Solomon. This world is evil. Creation is groaning, as Romans 8.22 says. This world is hopeless, Solomon says. It's subjected to futility, Paul says again in Romans 8.20. But there's one thing this world needs. This is the glimmer of hope I want you to see. The silver lining underneath these otherwise mercy, dark verses. Y'all notice with me? What was it in verse 1? that Solomon says they lack. He's calling a spade a spade. He's saying just how bad reality is. But then he says, if only they had this. What is that something? It's the comfort. No one to comfort them. No one to comfort them. And brothers and sisters, we have the comfort. We have the compassion. We have the glorious news that a lost and dying world desperately longs for. The world needs Christ's compassion. The comfort that Solomon longs for in verse 1. It needs us to present this Jesus who is gentle and lowly. This Jesus who will bear our burdens. This Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weak, all you who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. The world needs us to bring this gospel to them. This world doesn't just need Christ's compassion, although it chiefly does. It also needs the church's compassion. We must be a ministry not just of gospel-centered proclamation, and we take that seriously at this church, we must also match, complement, supplement this primary ministry with gospel-centered ministry. 
preaching and loving and serving this community. That's why we have a clothes closet. That's why we have a food pantry. That's why we equip the saints to go and love and have compassion and comfort on a world that is reeling this moment. Let's take it home. I don't just need Christ's compassion and the church's compassion. It needs your compassion. You. It needs you and me to start living in light of everything we are claiming to believe in this very room. But you could turn that on its head and say the truth of the matter is many of you in this room are feeling it. You feel the acute effects of this fall right now and you are in need of compassion. This church, indeed you, need this from one another. You need the church to pray for you, to pick you up, and that's why we're here. So please avail yourself to us. You must let us know when you have a burden that needs bearing. We need your compassion. I need it. You need it. We need it from one another. That's why you ought to join a Sunday school. It's the best way to get a small group, smaller, relative term, in this church. You need to find a circle to love, serve, and pray alongside. Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons we need one another is we need it for compassion. For apart from compassion, suffering would prove unbearable. That's number one. But let me direct your attention to a second thing. Beginning in verse 4, I want you to notice that another reason we need one another is not just for compassion. We really need it for contentment. Contentment. You see, the American dream that we live and breathe, it's built on this sense of holy discontent. In other words, you got to work harder to provide more than what your family provided for you growing up. you got to play harder to win more. And it's somewhat prized and idolized in our culture. In other words, it's, it's kind of the definition of having a good work ethic, the American dream. <laughs> but when you read Ecclesiastes, Solomon looks at this Western dream and calls it a nightmare. He sees this as a nightmare. Because when Solomon looks at the impulses we all have to succeed, Solomon sees nothing but greed. Look with me in verse 4. I saw all these people working, and all that happened was it was all coming from envy of man's neighbor. This is vanity. This is a chasing after the wind. In other words, he says, the ultimate motivation for all the things we do in this life, all the success we long for, it's jealousy. Now, when you finally confront that reality, which all of us do at some point, how many of you in this room have at some point in your life recognized, man, my motivations are suspect. Lord, help me in my motivations. When you reach that point, you tend to do one of two things, and Solomon points these two out. You either fall into this escapism of verse 5 and just fold your hands and say, you know what, whatever. I'm just going to cruise, do what I want, live for myself, I am going to enjoy leisure. I am going to enjoy substances. I am going to abuse whatever's going to make me just numb to this harsh reality that is this rat race of existence. That's verse 5. And what happens to the man who chooses that path in verse 5? It says he eats his own flesh, which is quite a graphic way of saying he consumes himself. This is not a good path. You will not be satisfied. You will be discontent if you just live for pleasure alone. Conversely, go look with me at verse 8. Here's the other path that people tend to go. Instead of just folding their hands and saying, whatever, most, I suspect, in this room look a whole lot more like the man in verse 8 who says uh, that they have no son or brother. 
All they do is end up working so hard and never get satisfied with their riches. All they're doing is working for themselves. They are so consumed with this race that they basically live a life from start to finish fixated with accumulating. And what happens? It too proves unsatisfying. It's never enough, verse 8 says. But did you notice I skipped something? For in verse 6, Solomon sandwiches in a better way. He gives us a little hint, a little pointer to a preferable path. Don't go the way of the sluggard in verse 5. Don't go the way of the workaholic in verse 8. He says in verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. Quietness. That word refers to a sense of calmness, a sense of peace, a handful of contentment. In other words, let's just say it this way. Better is to have one handful of contentment than two hands on the steering wheel racing. You find yourself discontent today? Are you discontent in your employment? Are you frustrated beyond compare? Do you find yourself overwhelmed with jealousy? Do you find yourself, truth be told, on a race to see just how much you can get to feel secure? Hear Jesus in Acts 20, 35, who says so memorably, it's better to give than to receive. Hear Paul in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, where he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can't take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation. They fall into a snare and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. G.K. Chesterton, a man of another age, he succinctly summarizes the spirit of this section when he says, there are two ways, brothers and sisters, to get enough. One is to accumulate more, and the other is to desire less. And we must learn, oh, we must learn the beauty, the wonder, the preferable reality that a handful of quietness is better than two hands filled with work and toil. We need one another to help us see that the rat race we're on is a fool's errand. Oh, wake up and see that every man we've ever buried in this church at the end of his life has never said he wished he worked more. They all, if they lament anything, they lament how little time they spent with their family, with their church, with their spouse, with one another. So just hear it. Let the siren be sounded now. Better is one handful of quietness. Number two, we need one another for contentment. Look at a third thing. This is the the key of the passage in my judgment. Verses 9 through 12. Number three, I want you to mark this down. We also need one another for community. You see, in verses 9 through 12, you start seeing the tone change in the passage. And finally, Solomon sounds a whole lot less pessimistic and melancholy. And he actually gives a vision of the future. And he says, look, we've got some good things to look forward to. First off, he basically says two are better than one and gives us four different reasons why that's the case. Let me give you four reasons why it is preferable that you live in community. It is good and right that you join a local church, that you give yourself to this local church despite any sacrifice it entails. First off, 
We need this community because, first off, it strengthens you. Look at verse 9. He says, because they have a good reward for the toil. Let me give you a modern paraphrase. Teamwork makes the dream work, is what he's saying. One of the reasons why it's two or better than one is because we actually get more done when we're in a group. Later in chapter 10, he says, uh, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes, if the iron is blunt, who amongst this room would say they're a blunt instrument? If the iron's blunt and does not sharpen the edge, he needs to use more strength. Another hand needs to be put to that axe. And brothers and sisters, this is the beauty and wisdom of the local church. It applies in all of life, in work, Together, everyone achieves more. That's that corny poster you see in a lot of locker rooms. But it spells team. We need it. In marriage, this matters. You'll notice real quickly just how different you are when you get married. No matter how much you thought you were alike, give it a week in marriage and you'll discover, my word, we had better start complimenting one another soon. Or there's going to be friction. This works in the church. Which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 describes the church as the body of Christ. And as the body, not all of us are hands and feet and eyes and ears. We all complement one another. We need one another for community because it strengthens you. It actually enhances you. Moreover, we see in verse 10 that we need this community that stabilizes you. Look at verse 10. It says, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. You're going to slip. You're going to fall. And woe to you when you do without a friend. Woe to you when you slip and fall and nobody knows. If any man thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall, the Bible says. Moreover, Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 1, If we are caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is the ministry of the church. H.B. Charles, one of my favorite preachers down in Jacksonville, he says that the church is in the business of restoration, not amputation. This should be our mission, that we are coming and finding those who have fallen and pick them up and help them taste and see the goodness and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if you are harboring secret sin, if there is something eating at your soul right now and nobody knows, it is the smoothest, slickest lie of the devil that you keep it to yourself. Before the sun sets today, you find a brother, you call me, you find somebody and you confess that sin. And you experience the grace of Jesus who says if you confess, he is faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will keep you from stumbling. Indeed, he will make you stand on that final day. We need community that stabilizes us. Moreover, in verse 11, we need community that sustains us. Which first, I'll tell you, verse 11 has some bizarre imagery. It it doesn't really ring in our experience. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Your mind may be drawn to the marriage bed, but there is imagery that would make more sense given when this was written. For at that time... Anybody that traveled didn't have the Holiday Inn, of course, to stay in. They had to sleep outside. If you've ever watched uh, the CBS uh, reality TV show Survivor, now you understand why they all sleep so close to each other, because they have to keep warm. And this is what they did. They had to get warm together. And if you were a loner on this traveler uh, travel, you're going to be in a jam. You could freeze at night. And let's just take that imagery and apply it to our life right now. 
There are probably a great many in this room who are in a spiritual winter of the soul. You find yourself cold. Your heart's just grown cold. Your mind feels numb. Your body feels weak. And you need to know that a man will not survive that sort of dark winter of the soul alone. Trees don't survive in the winter unless their roots grow deep. And so I wonder, how deep are your roots? Do you have somebody near you? Are you connected into this community? Or do you come and go as you please? If you are, praise be to God, those of you that have warm bodies, that are secure, my plea to you today is that you would go and find those who are not, and that you would be the warmth they so desperately need to get through this dark night of the soul. Therein lies the ministry, the magic, the genius of the local church. We need community that sustains us. And lastly, we see in verse 12 that we need community that safeguards us. Because you'll notice it says, though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly uh, broken. Of course, that imagery is pretty straightforward. Anybody with eyes can understand that he's referring to the imagery that all and every last one of us are in a battle of some kind. We are in a spiritual battle where there is an enemy waging war with our soul. And this enemy longs for you. And so there's two things we must do. The one our mind obviously always goes to is we need to gear up. Put on the full armor of God, as Ephesians 6 says. So that means be in the word. Be a man of the word and of prayer. But here's the trick. Brothers and sisters, I have been studying God's word professionally for a long time. And I can proudly walk out with all of my Bible knowledge, wield my sword of the Spirit, feel like I've got on my helmet of salvation, my shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, my feet are shod with the gospel of peace. I will feel armed except, guess what? I've got a backside, a blind spot, a part that I can't see. And therein lies the beauty and wisdom of the local church. We need one another to protect each other, to point out our blind spots. Because the thing about a blind spot is you can't see it. You don't even know it's there. You actually feel, you can feel really secure and be utterly vulnerable. Every last one of us is. Which again is why if any man thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. If you lack accountability in this church, if there is not a small group of men or women you know and who know you, I'm just telling you right now, you are barely scratching the surface of what it means to be a member. Membership is not just coming to worship. The great benefit of being a part of this community of fellowship is to receive the accountability, the protection that this community affords. For when you do, you will notice the imagery that a threefold cord, instead of just a twofold or one cord, a threefold cord, that rope is not going to break too easily. You are going to find yourself safeguarded. Let's conclude our time, land the plane today, by just touching on the final few verses. I'll admit, they are a little convoluted. They're, they're tough to understand. I really just want to draw your attention to verse 13. There's some, one last thing I want to pull out from this text before I pray. For you notice in verse 13, it starts to describe a little, another little anecdote about a ruler. It says in verse 13, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. Stop. Young poor kid he says, is better than the old, rich, wise king. Why? Notice what he says. That old king was foolish because he no longer knew how to take advice. 
Be reminded that pride comes before the fall. King Uzziah fell. Lucifer fell. Nimrod fell. The Edomites fell. Haman fell. Nebuchadnezzar fell. I've met with the pastor of a former church I was associated with who fell, overseeing a large, growing, vibrant church. And with tears running down his face, he looked at me, and I was 19 years old, and says, whatever you do, do not pastor and lack accountability. We all need it. I have sat with countless fathers and mothers in my office who have lamented the sin they brought into their home because they lacked accountability. Star athletes. I've known a star athletic child who was incarcerated because he lacked accountability. Countless leaders. I mean, the list is sickening. How many I could name off who have fallen because they lacked accountability. And so the final plea to each of us is, brothers and sisters, how isolated are you? We may feel physically isolated in this age of pandemic, but are you spiritually isolated? Is there anybody who knows you? Is there anybody who can come to you and speak to you with candor and say, I'm concerned about this blind spot in your life? Oh, may we be a church filled with men and women who gladly receive the correction the correction. And fourth and finally, we need one another because we need correction. Unlike this king shunned, we need it, brothers and sisters. Don't neglect the wisdom of Christ. Don't neglect the wisdom of this church that will strengthen you, sustain you, stabilize you, and safeguard you from the evil one. But if you know nothing of what I speak, you don't know the Christ who is the foundation of this all. I want you to see that this Jesus of whom we speak, He is the one who will come and do what I nor any man nor church could not do. In your loneliness, He will come and be a friend closer than a brother. In your suffering, He will come and have compassion on you like no man, woman, or child ever could. In your frustrating, unsatisfied discontent, He will come and satisfy you beyond your wildest imagination. This Jesus will come and He will show that He is everything you're not and He is for you everything you long for. For this Jesus came and lived the life you never lived. He died the death that you deserve. He was raised triumphantly from the dead. He is alive and reigning and His call to you today is that you turn from your sins, you believe on Him, and you be saved. And when you do, you will now at last taste that which Solomon, in all of his self-reflective melancholy, was wondering if it's even possible. The glory and wonder of peace with God, your Maker. And so today, I want to call each and every one of you to respond and as we respond in prayer and in praise to our God, remember, remember, until that day comes when we at last see him face to face, take it to the bank. We need one another. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, now I ask that you would so move in this room that those who have heard my voice both here and online would have eyes open to behold their great need. Oh God, would you silence the evil one who is lying into the minds and hearts and ears of your people, leading them to think 
that they need not one another. Lord, we need you, and by your grace we have each other. So remind us of this, and unite and strengthen this church that we might fulfill that which you've called us to, a community that strengthens, sustains, stabilizes, and safeguards one another. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. I invite you to stand, and as we do, Gerald will lead us in a song of response.